Thank you very much. Good night. Woo. God bless you. Thank you. Man. Thank you very much. And all I have to say is you have no idea of how good it feels to be back at the Master's College. Uh, I promised myself, as I was growing up here in Southern California, I was born in Glendale, about 35 miles that way, and then I grew up in the San Inez Valley, just above Santa Barbara. For those of you who aren't from California and you have never been there, go there. Go to Santa Barbara, then go over the hill to Solvang. And that's where I grew up. And I promised myself as a young boy that I would never leave California. On a regular basis, even as a wee little lad, I would wake up in the morning and I would see the sunshine outside and I would realize that the ocean was only a few minutes that way and Mammoth, where we went snow skiing, was only a few miles that way. And I said, I live in the Garden of Eden. I will never leave. And then I had the pleasure of coming to work at Grace Community Church some years ago for John, the first six years of my ministry there as a pastor on staff. And then as Dave said, by the way, thank you, Dave, for the wonderful introduction. I'm glad you could read my handwriting. That was helpful. Uh, I had the chance to come out here to the Santa Clarita Valley or Placerita Canyon, as we so beloved have in our heart for this place. And I would come out of classes that I would teach over here at Grace Baptist and the sun would be out. Thanks, Lord. I'm really thankful for the great weather I've had in my trip here this week uh, to California. Anyway, the sun would be out and, and the weather, you know how the, the, the sun and the atmosphere and the temperature and the color of the trees and the grass just kind of yells at you, don't go back to the office, don't go to your next class, don't go study, go have fun, amen? Amen! And I was often very responsive to this call of nature. And I would say to myself, I am never going to leave Southern California. Some years ago, one of the students that I had a privilege of being a part of his life and her life, Paul Martin, who's here tonight, and Sue Heaney, as we knew her then, they uh, were going to get married, and she lived in this obscure little place called Bremen, I'm tangled, Bremen, Indiana. Bremen, Indiana. Never heard of it before in my life. They said, will you come back and be a part of our our, our service, our, our wedding. I was honored by that. I said, sure. They said, we'd like your wife to come. I said, fantastic. We landed at this, this little airport somewhere in this desolate tundra of the Midwest. It was November. We were in a rented car, and we had to make about a 30-mile journey somewhere to get to this no place called Bremen, Indiana. It was in the evening about 6 o'clock. It was pitch black. It was dark already. The sun had long since said goodnight. The snow was falling out of the sky and we, we were lost and we drove by this high school and the lights on the football field were on and out in the middle of all the snow, guys were playing football. And it just, I said, Heidi, they're playing football in the snow. This is inconceivable. This is incomprehensible. This is impossible. This can't be true. We drove a little further and the snow continued to mount and I remember distinctly looking over at Heidi and saying, aren't you glad we don't live in Indiana? <laughs> and she looked at me and said, yep. And then I said to her, we will never live 
in Indiana. After some time, uh, the ministry here at the Master's College and just feeling the pull of God upon my heart to, to become a senior pastor and spend the principal part of my life uh, preaching the Word of God and discipling men in the context of a local church, when that urge became just overwhelming, I went and had a conversation with Dr. MacArthur. And uh, I said, John, I think it's time for me to move on. I, I really want to be a pastor. I want to just do what you do. I just want to fulfill my calling from God. And uh, he said, okay, yeah, okay, that sounds fine. And so we started putting word out all over the country. The word went to Santa Barbara. The word went to San Diego. The word went all over California. But un unbelievably, the word also went to a little, a little bigger town than Bremen, not by much. Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, having looked at some of the other opportunities, we flew back to Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was again winter time. It was again snowing. We were again stuck in a little rental car trying to find our way to this church. And this time we were stopped at a stoplight. And the snow was so heavy and so dense that they had the snow mover machines out on the streets. And we're sitting in this little rental car at a stop sign, and along comes in the passing lane this huge, uh, you know, tractor thing on the front of this truck that's pushing snow, and it literally just rocks our car as it drives by us and sprays us with its snow. And I said, Heidi, I don't think this is God's will for our life. I don't think we'll ever live in Indiana. Well, it just became apparent that by virtue of the ministry that existed in this marvelous church called Blackhawk Baptist Church, a church of about 2,000 people, just doing a phenomenal work in a city of about 300,000 people that seemed so suited to us, and they were so warm and so receptive that we actually did accept the call. And for the last 18 months, we have been living in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like God? You tell him, I am never going to do this. And he just sits up there and says, oh yeah? You want to bet? He has a way, doesn't he? So recently my big statement is I will never be a millionaire. I, I, I refuse. God, I will never, ever be independently wealthy. Millions of dollars. Forget it. Get it out of your mind. Not happening to me. I love doing that, I tell you. Woo! You know what? You are in the absolute best part of your life. You're in college. You are out of high school. You are out of that direct parental oppression. Yo! Nobody is holding your hand or actually the leash that they have around your neck. You are now on your own. You're free. And you can choose your own majors, and you can choose how you're going to spend your day. And, and you, you are living the four, for some of you the five, for some of you the six, best years of your life. And uh, yeah, right here, amen, brother, amen, amen. There's nothing like college, and those of us tonight who are here who have been through college, we look back on that and go, man, those were the, those were the days, those were the fun days. And I know you're... I know you're under pressure, I know you have studies, I know there are relational pressures, I know that it's not totally bliss 
But it is, without question, one of the very best times of your life. And what I want to talk to you about tonight are five things. I want to give you five principles that are characteristics of an individual that I believe will maximize your involvement here at the Master's College. Your personal existence at this college will be maximized by these five principles. I also believe, don't miss this, I also believe that if you will follow these five principles, you will make the Master's College unquestionably the best college in all the world. And I'm not just saying that. I really believe that happens. And, and then thirdly, I believe that if you will incorporate these five principles into your life, that when you graduate and you go to take up your place in the rank and file of the churches of America, and my assignment tonight is to talk to you about commitment to the local church, commitment to the body of Christ, and I'm thrilled to do that. I believe that if you'll take these five principles and, and build them into your life and make them habits of who you are, you will be the greatest blessing to any church that you go to. Your pastor will look at you and he will say, may your tribe increase. You make my life better. You make my life wonderful. Thank you for being a part of my fellowship. And I believe that you will change your church. I believe that you will be a change agent in the church to which God calls you. Let me share these five with you tonight. And really, these are just exciting things that, that have changed my life and that really we have built the Master's College on in the last six or seven years. The first one, come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let's go and look at verses 23, 24, and 25. If, there, if therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, they will not say that you are mad. In other words, you know the confusion that was existing at the church of Corinth, the worship time, that, that one time when the body of Christ collected itself out of the streets, out of the highways, out of the byways. They left their homes and they got together as a body of Christ. There was confusion there and things were not as they should have been. But then he describes how it ought to be. Verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Characteristic number one, set it in your heart to be a true worshiper of God. I want to talk to you about that for just a minute. What does that mean? Set it in your heart to worship God from the depth of your soul. One of the things that we have always sought to achieve at the Master's College has been a chapel ministry that when you all came out of your dorm rooms and off of your off-campus housing, even though I know that's hard sometimes because there are studies to be attended to and there, the sun is calling you to go to the beach, understandably. But the commitment of, of this school has always been to provide a place where you, above everything else, can encounter God in chapel where you can worship Him, where you can come and say, this is more than a requirement that I sign in on the back. 
This is more than listening to somebody speak. This is more than singing some songs, which just by the way, this whole thing, Steve Miracle and you guys in that group are just wonderful. You have taken that to a whole new level and I congratulate you for that. But you're saying, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to get beyond the externals of Christianity. I'm going to get beyond the fact that my body is in a particular room and I am going to pursue God with all my heart in this collective assembly for the next hour and 15 minutes. You are in that time looking to praise Him. You are in that time looking to exalt His name. You are in that time looking to learn from the Word of God things about Him, His character, His nature, His attributes, things that He would have for you to do in your life. You are here with with a broken and contrite spirit seeking the very face of God. That will revolutionize this college and it will revolutionize any church you ever go to. What churches end up being, and what sometimes a chapel ends up being, is the people coming through the door become consumers. And they say, I dare you to interest me today. I dare you to provoke my thought. I, I, will, I will be here, especially in a church setting, I will be here as long as I get something out of it for me. And my friends, that's important, and I agree with what our speaker, Jerry Mitchell, said this morning, that if you're being bored in your church, it's your preacher's responsibility. If doctrine becomes boring, that's not the doctrine's fault, that's the communicator's fault. But at the same time, I want to add the emphasis that you do not come to this chapel and you do not come to your assembly in your local church to do anything other than to praise and worship and exalt and extol the very person of God. And that's what was happening here. Look at it again just to remind you. When this unbeliever, verse 24, comes into the place, verse 25, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed because the power of the Spirit of God is convicting him through the music and through the preaching and through the people that he encounters in that setting. Then he will fall on his face and worship God. That's it. That's church. That's chapel. And you may not feel free to do that physically and openly, but certainly in your heart. Come into this place and come into your local churches saying, I am going to glorify God. And there's going to be something very personal, though it's a very public place, going on in my heart and my mind with the God who loves me, the God who saved me, and the God who said He would meet me here. Amen? Point two. Take your Bible now and go to Galatians chapter 6. And this is just a unbelievably important principle about being an effective individual in your school and in your church. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Principle number two, be involved in genuine relationships. Be involved in honest, transparent, genuine relationships where people in your life can know enough about you 
that they, they can discern when you are stepping off the path of righteousness and you are being caught and allured by the things of the world. And they are willing to restore you and to bear your burden. The word restore there is a Greek word that means to mend a net or to mend a broken bone. And the picture of it in the Bible is of a couple of fishermen sitting in their boat and they've been fishing out there and the net has been caught on something, uh, maybe a, a tree limb underneath the water or they had too much junk and it ripped the net or the, the net just got worn. And this word restore pictures these fishermen in their boat and they are taking out needle and thread or whatever they use to mend that net. In other words, to return it back to a place of usefulness. You and I are going to find the net of our life torn by our own sin, torn by our own selfishness, torn by our own subtle, quiet demand that life be everything that, it, that I want it to be. And we desperately need people in our lives who know us enough to restore us, to mend the net of our life and put us back into a place of usefulness. When I moved to Indiana, I left a group of people that were that way to me. And they loved me. And they knew me. And they knew what was going on inside of me. I, I, I didn't really even have to tell them. And one of the first objectives that I had in Fort Wayne, Indiana, was to find and cultivate and pray that God would give me another group of people like that. And it happened in a most unusual way. It was probably 12 months in my stay. Those kind of people don't just happen, you know. That's kind of a thing that God does in your life. And I was working on the master bathroom in my house. We bought this house and it needed some renovation, so I got busy renovating it. And uh, I'm not really handy. And I got this skill saw out and I'm ripping a, a piece of plywood and I really want to make sure I get it exact. So I kind of lean over the edge and I, I watch the blade cut on the little line that I've marked, which is like the major bozo thing to do in your life. And, and the, the blade catches and throws some uh, splinters and one of them goes into my eye. I didn't have any safety goggles on. So I go to the doctor. I never met this guy. His name is Brandon, Brandon Berger. You know, what a name. So I meet him. He's very gracious. He puts me on the table, puts that stuff in my eye, puts the light in my eye, figures it out, takes out what's there, puts a patch over it for two days, and I go home. His secretary happens to be a member in my church. I'm feeling real swift at that point. Uh, you know, she has to listen to the description of how I did this. But I liked him. There was something about him. Well, I get to work on my house on Mondays because that's my day off. The next Monday, I'm working again. The patch is off. I'm thinking, well, I better finish ripping that board. So I take the same board and the same saw and peek over the edge again. And sure enough, I got some splinters in my eye. Funny thing, isn't it? Same eye. I go to the same clinic with the same nurse to see the same doctor and say the same story. And they're looking at me like, you are in trouble, pal. You do need help. So he lays me back again, puts the same juice in my eye, puts that light back there, pulls those splinters out, puts a patch, and then he hands me a pair of safety goggles. <laughs> Said, uh, Russ, while we were working on you, I sent the secretary down to the hardware store. These are called 
safety goggles. Feel free to wear these whenever you have a skill saw in your hand. <laughs> Good night. While we're in there, though, after you put the patch on my eye for the second time, he said, uh, he said, you know, I've been working with somebody. As a matter of fact, in my church, he didn't go to my church. He's talking about his church. An associate pastor on our staff had committed adultery. And in the process of this adulterous affair, he impregnated her. And the pastor in that affair is married. And the woman he was having the affair with is married. And he came to me, this pastor did about 12 months ago, and told me his problem and said, I need your help. I, I, I don't know what to do. And of course, this pastor was coming only because he knew he was going to get caught. She was going to start the show. And the husband, apparently there were things going on in their relationship which left no doubt that it was not the product of their marriage. He said, I just spent the last 12 months trying to mend this guy's life. And we've reached an impasse with our church. And we need some spiritual leadership. Would you be a part of our lives? It was as if God was writing on the wall. Will I be a part of your... You mean you're the kind of person? A, a medical doctor, a physician that will take out the last 12 months of your life. By the way, the wife of this pastor was so overwhelmed with grief and anger and pain that she wouldn't even live in the house that they were living in. And so he, the doctor, and his wife opened their home to this woman and she had lived with them for the last 12 months. They had lost all their friends because they had judged them for caring for this associate pastor, contrary to the direction of their church. They had been ostracized by three of families that they had known and loved for the last 15 years, their very best friends. I said, well, you want me to be a part of that? Count me in. And so I grabbed my youth pastor, Tim Tedder, and the four of us meet every single Thursday from 12 to 2. And you know what we talk about? What's really going on in our lives. It's important that we ask each other, are we in the Word? And we do. It's important that we ask each other, are we in prayer? And we do. But we also ask each other questions like, have you been involved in anything connected to immorality in the last seven days? Have you viewed anything that is pornographic in nature? Have you talked to any other person of the opposite sex in a way that is inviting to a level of intimacy that you have no business having? Or are you silently corking the beginning steps of an adulterous affair? Are you involved in any kind of financial dealing with your taxes or your church money or with him as a doctor, with your billing of patience that in any way compromises your absolute commitment to Christ? You know what? In the last 12 months, I've had to say yes to some of those questions. I'm not in that group because they need me. I'm in that group because I need them. 
we got pastors falling left and right in this country. And everyone that I know about falls because there is no personal accountability in his life. There are no relationships there that are close enough and asking the kinds of questions that reveal the kinds of issues that eventually blow up in some public scandal and wound an entire church and a community and a city. And those are guys in the ministry, much less doctors and lawyers and other people. I want to ask you a question. Are there people in your life today, at this college, that you're cultivating a relationship with that could restore you, that could bear your burden, that you love enough and trust enough to say, this is what's really going on in my life. And even though it embarrasses me beyond my wildest dreams, I believe you love me enough, I'll tell you. And I'll trust you with the information. Some of you have roommates who are behind the scenes involved in immorality, whether it be sexual immorality or whether it be involving alcohol or drugs. When, when I was here for the six years at the Master's College, we never had a year. We never had a year where we didn't have students getting pregnant outside of wedlock, where we didn't have students involved in, in sexual things, immorality. Never had a year where we didn't have people involved in some kind of alcohol or drug abuse. But you know what? Every year we tried to say to the student body, the best way to resolve that problem is not to run to Betty Price or to Dave Maddox or to your RD. The very best way to resolve that problem is with you as an adult as an individual, as a collegiate, as someone who this country would entrust to go to another place called Iraq and fight for our freedom and handle that level of responsibility. You people are the ones to solve that problem. You are the ones, according to the Word of God, who both in your college and later in your church have primary responsibility to restore that fallen brother. I don't know. Sometimes we confuse our Christianity with, with this notion, I have a very personal relationship with Christ. And that's true. You do and I do too. It's very personal. But it is not private. Part of being a part of the body of Christ means that my relationship with Christ, while it's personal and He knows me intimately, He knows everything about me. At the same time, because I am connected by the Spirit of God and baptized into the very body of Christ, there's nothing private about my relationship with Christ. I hope and I trust that you're seeking those kinds of relationships and that kind of accountability. Because as one who has lived in this world and has tried to dedicate myself to Christ, I'll just be honest with you, I need that desperately. You take the accountability out of my life and I'm a time bomb waiting to blow up. Principle number three, Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 8 for a minute. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says this, Finally, brethren, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is of any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. You know what the Master's College needs? And you know what Blackhawk Baptist Church needs? And you know what the churches in America need? They need people who are committed to having a positive attitude. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual and it probably doesn't sound very profound, but I mean to tell you that what it takes are people who are willing to look at the bright side of life. People who are willing to look at what is right instead of always focusing on what is wrong. We used to have a phrase that we inaugurated the very first year that I was here. And it was asked at a question. I would say, what do you love about the Master's College? And people would say everything. And they would say everything. And they would say it with enthusiasm. And they would say it from the bottom of their heart. At that time, up in Hotchkiss, we had, we had fiberglass clogging the drains. People couldn't take showers. We put in this new finagled floor that was supposed to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right, Dr. Stead? Right, Mark Tatlock? And it didn't work at all. It was a total sham. These people took us for money, good money we paid them. And their product kept clogging all of our drains and students couldn't take showers. They had to come down these steps and shower in the gymnasium. Think of it every morning. It was horrible. But we had... Some of you received an outline uh, that uh, when you entered the doorway, and it is the wrong outline, so they told me at the uh, school here that you should use that as your quiet time for the next three weeks. And uh, thank you. Water? Anything else? During the time of Knights and Nobles, one of the greatest compliments that you could bestow on someone was to sing a song about them. To honor someone of greatness, you would compose an original song about them, and thus in a way you would immortalize them. What's surprising to me is that you'll find that same tradition in the Bible. In fact, remember during the, king, uh, the reign of King Saul, where he experienced a song that was the number one song on the charts. It was the top there. It was the hit single of its day. It was slaw, slaw. <laughs> Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that was sung in the streets. Of course, that turned Saul into a music hater. He never got over that and spent the rest of his days fighting David instead of God's enemies. But even worse than that hit tune was no hit tune. In other words, one of the worst curses in the ancient world was to do great deeds, but to have no one notice. To be an unsung hero. To have incredible things done and yet no one take notice. The reason I share that with you is because that same attitude has made its way into the lives of Christians. Many collegians fear being insignificant, not being noticed, in fact, unappreciated. What I do doesn't really matter. Nobody notices, so it really doesn't count. Just ask them what they do for a living, and you can tell that they feel insignificant. What do you do? Well, I'm only a cook. What do you do? I'm only in a, a receptionist. What do you do? Well, I'm only an RA. What do you do? Well, I'm only the dean of men. What do you do? I don't do much. I'm just an accountant of a small firm, IBM. Christians feel the same way. They look at pastors or guys who are communicating God's truth 
And they look at them and they say, well, gosh, if I could only be that way, well, then I would really count for the kingdom. Or if I could just sing and, and be musical, well, then my life would be significant. Or if I could just be a missionary and be sent across the world somewhere to do a great work for God, well, then it would really count. They have this feeling, this problem, that I'm not one of those, and so therefore I don't really count. I don't really measure up. But that's a problem because the church doesn't run with just upfront seen kind of ministry. In fact, it's the unseen and the unsung that are most important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 and following, Paul says this. Don't turn there, just listen. It says, The members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members that we think less honorable, God has given more abundant honor. And in Paul's analogy of the body, what he's saying is you can live without an eye. You can live without fingers. You can live without an ear, but you can't live without a kidney or a liver or an organ. Those things that are inside that no one ever sees. The unsung parts of the body are the most crucial that keep it going. You see, that means three things. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have a part to play in the church. A very significant part to play in the body of Christ. Even if it's an unseen part, it is still absolutely crucial to the livelihood and the success of the body of Christ. The church of God's expression of ministry in this age. It also means, number two, that no matter what you're like, God has given you a, a tailor-made, unique ministry that no one else can do. No one else. And number three, it means you'll never know, you'll never know the abundance that God has designed for your life until you find your fit in the body of Christ. You will never know the blessings that He wants to bestow on you and through you until you find your unique place in the body of Christ. Do you know your fit? Some of you say, well, I just want to be married. I, I want to marry a six-foot-tall, dark-haired man who drives a Porsche. It's fascinating to find out what you end up with. He could be five-foot-one, bald, and drive a moped, you know? I'm a parent, I have a wife and two boys, and, and I thought I'd bring a wallet photo here, right here. This is, this is Gene, Matthew, and Mark, we're praying for Luke and John still, and uh, as a parent, I study my boys, because I want to guide them as a father should, and I begin to notice certain things about my son, Matthew, loves time. You can do a lot of things for Matthew. Uh, you can give him gifts, but when you score with Matthew, when you really connect with Matthew, is that you spend time with him. And so on Monday, before I got on the plane, I went down to his school and stood outside his classroom and surprised him and just sat and had lunch with him. And for 15 minutes, we just talked and conversed. And after that time, it was almost predictable. Because after that time, he, he gets up and even in front of his friends, comes over, gives me a big, big hug and says, Dad, I love you because I spent time with you. My son Daniel, um, he loves gifts. You can spend a lot of time with Daniel, 
But unless you give him gifts, he doesn't really know that you love him. And so I sent him a card when I was on one trip, and I called him up and said, Daniel, did you get your card? Mark Daniel is his name. Did you get your card? And he said, well, yeah, Dad, but next time, could you put a dollar inside before you send it? Six years old. Unbelievable. I've been studying not only their likes and dislikes, but their skills. And I found out to kind of help them find their fit, I've looked at Mark Daniel, and he likes to take things apart. Um, he likes to break pens open and, and take toys apart, dismantle the stereo, dissect the dog. You know, I mean, just amazing things. And um, we kind of think he's going to be either a demolition expert or a surgeon, one of those two. And the reason I share that with you is that in the same way, when you study your own soul, as God has made you and put you together, he has given you a skill, a unique fit purpose within the context of the family of God, not the local family, but the, the larger family of God that only you can do. You say, that's nice. No, it's not. It's crucial. It's crucial. You'll never know the abundance that God has for you until you find that fit. Take Roger, a man at our church, good friend, tried to be an elder, tried to do helps and help people and set things up, take things down. He tried to be an evangelist in some expression of that. He, he tried mercy, never fit, never content. Until now, when you look at him, you, you'd never see a happier Christian. Busy, yes. Sacrificing sometimes, yes. Worn out sometimes, but he's never happy. You know, he found his fit. You know what his fit is? Shepherding junior hires, pre-human beings. Unbelievable, and he loves it. He can't wait. He's right exactly where he's supposed to be. And not only is it something where you'll find the abundance that God has for you, but it's also your method for survival. I've had an amazing year. 1992 was probably the best 10 years of my life. I was called, slandered in the newspapers in our town, called Jim Jones. I was sued. I was actually about to be physically removed from my pulpit by 20 men in the front row. And you know what? I wouldn't be doing anything else in the world because I'm right where God wants me to be. I found my fit. I was doing what He's supposed to be. And, and I couldn't have survived if I wouldn't have known exactly what He wanted me to do. And no matter what happens, you'll survive in that kind of context. Do you know your fit? Let's get really kind of greasy today, can we? I can't ennoble you like some of the men who have gone before me. I'm kind of like a mechanic kind of preacher, work with the nuts and bolts. So stick your hat on backwards, would you, like Gomer? Open the hood, and let's look at what the engine is like and the way God has put you together. Let's find your fit and open your Bible, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Let's check out your commitment to the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Let's just read these two verses. It says, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's writing to people just like you and I, and in the midst of his discussion of suffering and persecution, he now is moved by the Spirit of God to give us some kind of survival principles to live in a hostile world. How are you going to make it as this world becomes less and less based on a Christian ethic and more and more based on a hostile to Christianity type of stance? We'll take a look at verse 7. He says, if you're going to survive in this hostile world, then remember time is short. Think clearly. Keep your cool. Don't panic. Have an eternal perspective. Give yourself to prayer. Love one another. And have a great love for the lost. And then he wraps it up with two survival exhortations in verses 10 and 11. And what he's saying is, if you're going to survive in a hostile world, then you have to be fully involved in ministry. If you're going to really make it in this world, you've got to know your place. Know your fit. Every member of the body of Christ is in the ministry. You say, why? Why should I do this? Go back to what Daryl shared and the men yesterday shared. We're here to live for the glory of God. We all know that. Say, how, to, how do you glorify God? Let me give you the secret of the Christian life. Are you ready? Only God can glorify God. Only God can glorify God. Say, what does that mean? The only time you glorify God is when God in you lives through you to give glory to God. Remember Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. It is Christ in us and through us. That means what you are here today, Christian, is a pipe. Some of you are itty-bitty refrigerator pipes. Some of you are gigantic, gigantic sewer-type pipes. Or maybe needed drainage pipes. Whatever kind of pipe you are, it says God fills us and flow through us that you begin to experience the presence of God and the blessing of God. And as you then point your life towards those unbelievers and as God flows through you, they see Jesus Christ. And some respond as the Holy Spirit draws them to Himself. And as you point that pipe to other Christians, that's ministry. And God has given you a specific kind of ministry. Let's look at the importance of it by looking at verse 10. Two points today. First, the importance of this fit. Notice what Peter says in verse 10. He says, as each one has received a special gift. The word each one there is emphatic. It means it's beginning in the verse. And the emphasis is each one of you have received a special gift. And God's point is that each one of you is crucial even if you're unseen, even if you're an unsung hero, you're crucial. In fact, in God's Word, there's no gap between the clergy and laity. It's essential for everyone to function. As a, and, and they have a place to serve and a part to play. It's kind of like you're a, you're a jigsaw puzzle. I've got a little jigsaw piece up here. Each one of you is just like this. The protrusions are like your strengths, your talents, your gifts. The indentations are your weaknesses, your shortcomings. The elements of your personality, they're unbalanced. Each one of you is just like a piece in a jigsaw. And what's fascinating, the beautiful thing is the, in the plan of God is that the pieces complement one another. And so your weaknesses are filled in by my strengths 
and your strengths and fill in my weaknesses. And then as we fit together in its expression in the local assembly, then we give the world a picture of Jesus Christ. You ever made a jigsaw puzzle and had about three or four pieces missing? And immediately your attention is not drawn to the picture, but what? To the missing piece. Could you be that missing piece and the expression of the local body as they give the world a picture to our love and to our unity of Jesus Christ? Not only is it crucial, but also this verse tells us it's a privilege. Look at verse 10 again. He says, as each one has received a gift. And the word gift there is meaning something that is given out of grace. It's something that comes from God and never could have been achieved on your own or by your own effort. It's a God-given ability with, for service within the body of Christ. It's a, a, as a member, you've received a unique and special task or undeserved giftedness in which you use help to help others become more like Christ. It's a blessing from God to show love. His love. A few Valentine days back, I, I gave my wife, Jean, a, a bottle of love. I bought some parchment paper, five pens, and a couple of stamps, and with little hearts on it, and a fancy bottle. And I cut the paper into long strips and wrote out categories that would represent gifts to her. I put ten recreation slips, and that meant, you know, like to go bowling or play racquetball together. And, Ten dinner slips to very special restaurants that she liked, like McDonald's, and etc. Ten snacks, ice cream, and honeycomb candy, which she really likes. Five time zones, which meant that I would watch the kids for a certain period of time. Five trips to places like museums where she really likes to go. And ten love slips, which are none of your picking business. And I <clears throat> rolled them up, back rubs. You know what I'm talking about. And <clears throat> And I put them into little scrolls. <laughs> and I put... <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I put them into a jar, and they were to last the entire year so that one a week she could pull out as an expression and a reminder of my love for her. Can you imagine what it would be like if she let it sit there on the shelf? let it collect dust for a while, put it away somewhere where she couldn't see it, and then eventually I saw it in the trash. Can you imagine what that would be to me to see her then treat that gift in such a manner? You know, our God loves you greater than a husband could ever love a wife. And how is it that you express and treat the gift that he has given you? See, the importance of it is not only that it's crucial and a privilege, but also it's a responsibility. Take a look at verse 10 again. It's a responsibility. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards. And stewardship is a responsibility. And you're taught well here. And you know, you know that a steward is someone as a slave who is taking care of another man's property. And you have a responsibility, Christian, of dispensing another person's property, a gift that has been given you from God to be dispensed and managed. Take a look, if you would, and turn over to Luke chapter 19, verse 16. Let's look at this issue of stewardship just for a moment. How does God view stewardship in Luke chapter 19? There's a lot of history and truth that's contained in this particular parable. I just want to focus on the elements that 
that give light to what stewardship is all about. And in the parable of the ten minas, this nobleman goes to a distant country, and before he goes, he gives ten slaves, uh, ten minas each. Excuse me, he gives ten slaves one mina each, which is about three months' wages. And he tells them to do business with it until he comes back. And when he does return, he calls three of the slaves who represent the rest, and he calls them to report what business they've done and how they had used their stewardship, their gift. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Luke 19. He says, as we draw out three truths here, And the first slave appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. And principle number one of stewardship is it starts with little things. Little things. God expects you to use what you have, no matter how big or no matter how small. If you teach, then teach. If you're a giver, then give. And you may be the best encourager, so do it by sharing, talking, writing. You may be a great person with your hands, and so serve that way. And you may be an incredible administrator, so organize things. But use what God has given you. Be faithful with that little task. Some of us don't run out do little things. We wouldn't really say that because it would embarrass us. We, we only want to do big things. Public things, spotlight things, but stewardship starts with little things. Being faithful and little. Look at the second principle. The second principle of stewardship is that reward, the reward for doing little things. The reward for doing little things well is a bigger job. Now, that's the exact opposite in our society. The reward for doing a good job well is retirement in our society. The reward for doing a little thing well in God's economy is a bigger job. He says, you've been faithful in little things, verse 17. I give you authority over ten cities. Wow! Well done means now here's a really big job for you to do. You know, once you do it well, you don't stop... You just get more responsibility. The men who have come and proclaimed God's word to you already and will this week are men, in my opinion, as I have watched their lives, who were faithful in little things. And God gave them great responsibility. That's where it starts. Let's take a look at the third principle. Not only if you do things well, you get a bigger job, but stewardship principle number three is found in verse 20. Take a look at it. Luke 19. And another slave came saying, Master, behold your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. And Jesus goes on to call the slave a worthless slave. He takes his mina away and gives it to the other one. Principle number three of stewardship is this. There's great danger in a life wrapped in a handkerchief. Those of you who are poor stewards of what God has given you, those of you who do nothing with your gifts and talents and resources and abilities are in great danger. And one of the parallel passages, that, as it's articulated in the Gospel of Matthew, it would lead us to believe that those who don't use their gifts and service and never produce fruit, they're not saved and they're destined for hell. The true steward, the true Christian is a steward of what God has given them and they manifest that stewardship. They demonstrate it. Now go back, if you would, to 1 Peter 
Because remember, he calls us to be good stewards. And the word good is not the moral good of, of the Scripture, but it's the display kind of good. It's, it's the good that shows off. It's the good that people see in order to give glory to God in heaven. They begin to demonstrate Jesus Christ and His reality. And so the ministry of the members is important, not only because of all these reasons, but now the last one, it's unique. It's important because it's unique. Take a look at the end of verse 10. It says, We serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the word manifold there, many of you know, means many-colored, variegated, like the spots of a leopard. It's different colors. It's all different kinds. And when you look at people and gifts and expressions, they're all different manifestations of the grace of God. Take a look, a real hard look right now of the person sitting next to you. Take a look at their face, face to face right now. Notice how different they are. Some of you are going, yeah, they're really different. <laughs> Men and women, that's the grace of God. Not only did He give us external differences, He gave us internal I like to work with wood in my garage and made me think of a story about some tools that decided to hold a meeting about who was needed and who was not. And Brother Hammer presided. Several suggested that he leave the meeting because he was just too noisy. Replied the Hammer, well, if I have to leave this shop, then Brother Screw must leave also because you've got to turn him around and around again to get him to accomplish anything. Brother Screw spoke up and he said, if you wish, I'll leave, but Brother Plain must leave also. His work is on the surface. There's no depth to what he does. To this, Brother Plain reported, well, Brother Rule will have to withdraw because he's always measuring folks as though they were the only one, he was the only one that was right. And Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper because he was always rubbing people the wrong way. And in the midst of all this discussion, Jesus walked in and used all the tools in which to build a pulpit to proclaim the gospel. All those differences working together will then ultimately glorify God. And give Him the credit that He is due. Each one of us is different. But each one of us working together can accomplish what God has for us to do. In fact, we're so unique that only you can accomplish the work that God has given you to do. Don't reread Ephesians 2.10 the same way anymore. He has prepared for us good works. He's prepared you with a unique task that only you can do. Say, okay, okay, it's important. Well, how do I find mine? Well, that's point number two in our outline. Not only that is important, but also let's find the instruction on how to find our fit. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, again, excuse me, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 again. He says in the middle of verse 10 that our gift is to be employed in serving one another. And in verse 11 it says, with our service we are to rely on the strength that God supplies. And the first step to find your fit to find your ministry, the way that God wants you to be. Here are the steps. He gives it to us. He says, serve. Serve. The word is to wait on another, to care for another. It's to wash someone else's feet. In fact, it's in the present tense, which means it goes on continually. And if you're going to find your fit, if you're going to find your place in the kingdom of God, it's going to be as you give yourself first to service on a continual basis within the context of the body. That's when you'll find it. It's not found in a classroom. It's not found in your quiet time. It's found as you serve and step out in faith. In fact, to really understand this, turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. 
Acts chapter 6. Here the early church was growing and there was needs going unmet and the apostles couldn't meet the needs so they chose certain men to meet those needs. Acts chapter 6, in the middle of verse 5, it says they chose many men, but one of them was named Stephen, a man full of faith, it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then at verse 8, it says that Stephen was full of grace and power. Here's a man who had a remarkable grasp on the Word of God. Here's a man who, who had this incredible wisdom, boldness, and power. Here's a unique man that if he were here in our context, you would point him out and say, there's a unique Christian man set apart to do a great work of God. And what great task did the early church have for Stephen when he first started out? Serve tables. Unbelievable! I mean, Stephen could have said, well, I don't think you really understand how gifted I am. I mean, he could have stood back and said, wait a minute, I'm capable of great works for God. But no, he didn't. Praise God, he didn't. He humbly took his place with the other six servers and later became the first church martyr. What's the point? There's always room for another servant. You know, the spotlight can get a little crowded. But there's always room in the shadows for one more faithful servant who's willing to get down like Jesus and wash others' feet. It's so easy to forget the example that Christ set for us, isn't it? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. It's easy to forget not only his example, but his exhortation. The greatest among you shall be your servant. To find your fit, it won't be in chapel. It won't be in classes. It'll be in service to the body of Christ. Washing feet. Giving sometimes till it hurts. Sometimes publicly, as verse 11 articulates, sometimes privately. But either way, service. Turn back, if you would, to 1 Peter. Because next you'll find that not only you'll find your fit through service, but you'll find your fit through the Holy Spirit working through you. Not only service, but independence upon the Holy Spirit. I was so encouraged when Dr. MacArthur prayed, recognizing the fact that we can do nothing without the indwelling Holy Spirit. Acknowledging the fact that we can do nothing without His ministry through us. Look again at verse 11. Let me give you the literal rendering. God says through Peter, If one speaks as God's sayings, if one ministers as out of the strength which God supplies, and as we serve through ministry, whether through speech or whether through actions, it needs to be empowered by God by the Holy Spirit. In fact, God's work on God's way will never lack with God's power. See, the only pipe that's going to be ministered is the one that's flowing in and through with the Holy Spirit. You need to be, as Ephesians calls us, to be filled with the Spirit. That means under His control, filled with the Word of God. Some use the term yielded, and you know what yielded is in Southern California. Right? When you're getting on the freeway and it says yield, that means run that other guy off the road. It means that he has the right...